everyone, welcome back to the Metaverse podcast hosted by me, Jamie Burke, CEO and founder of Outlier Ventures. Our mission is to accelerate an open metaverse based on principles around sovereignty of identity, data, and wealth. On this podcast, we meet the leading founders, creators, and innovators and hear their personal stories and mission to make the metaverse more open. So on today's episode, we probably couldn't have had a better example around the principles of sovereignty, especially in the context of identity. So we're speaking to Fraser Edwards of Chet. Welcome, Fraser. Thanks for having me, Jamie. Really excited to be on the podcast and looking forward to kind of diving through, well, personal journey, but also the recent journey of, of Checked, how we came into being and what we're doing with self-sovereign identity and hopefully how we're going to help it take over the world. Yeah. And I think I can't emphasize enough the importance of self-sovereign identity and, um, you know, people that know me over the years, this is something I kind of continuously bang on about. And I think, you know, it's especially important in the context of the emergent metaverse. And of course, you know, what that looks like in the dystopic Zuckerberg's vision of it all. So we describe Checked as creating an authentic data economy. But I think what's really impressed me about you guys, and of course, we've worked together in the Outlier Basecamp Accelerator, is turning kind of SSI into a genuine commercial proposition. So rather than it being um, some kind of philosophical or social good, which of course, you know, I believe it is, um, you're actually demonstrating to businesses, small and large, that actually the commercialization of SSI makes sense um, and can be, you know, potentially incredibly profitable. So maybe we unpack um, self-sovereign identity a a little bit, but before we do, I kind of want to get into your background as a founder. Um, You're a co-founder, so you you have a colleague that you work with. So let's talk about you personally, and then I think we can talk about how you've responded effectively to this call out to pick up SSI. Uh, As I said, people that know me, know Outlier, know that we've been involved in the space for some time. Um, We were very involved with the Sovereign Foundation and Evanim, the commercial entity that effectively open sourced uh, a lot of SSI technology and has done a lot of good work with the Web3 Foundation to push forward standards around SSI, which includes uh, decentralized identifiers, DIDs, and verifiable claims. Um, But how did you arrive at SSI? And and then maybe we can even ask you to kind of give give the audience a, a quick 101 into what we mean by SSI. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and to be honest, I, I kind of fell into it over a number of years. So a bit of the story will cover on how I kind of met Anchor, my co-founder and the CTO of Checked. Um, but about five or six years ago, myself and Anchor were kind of building biometric systems for, for UK banks. So for anyone out there who's listening and has been through kind of voice biometric systems with their bank in the UK, it's likely that myself or Anchor have, have put in one of those. Um, but that was kind of my first taste of like identity and digital identity and, and what that looked like. 
And over the, the kind of years after that, I kind of went further into the biometrics rabbit hole. And then probably about four years ago, fell into, fell into the blockchain world. Um, and that was through a mix of like Ethereum hackathons and then actually um, kind of projects whilst I'd, I was at Accenture. Um, and some of those were in financial services. So um, the Jazz Brewing project, which was with two central banks, Singapore and Canada. But then a really incredible opportunity came along um, in the form of the Known Traveller Digital Identity Project. So that's a project between uh, Accenture, the World Economic Forum, and and two governments, uh, the Canadian and the Dutch government. Um, somehow the Canadians keep on showing up in my career, and I'm not entirely sure why. Um, not that I'm averse to it. But that, that project was really looking at using self-sovereign identity to kind of digitize the passport and make international travel kind of seamless. Um, and that was really one of my first tastes of what self-sovereign identity could do for a use case and do for individuals and really put them back at the center and give them back that control and that privacy. Prior to that, kind of my only kind of uh, like my first kind of step into that was uh, looking at the National Health Service project, which uh, Anchor was involved in again as well. And that was looking at using SSI to give uh, doctors their, their credentials back in a digital format. Um, there's a company called True who are, who are really leading this use case, which is for doctors in the NHS, if they're moving between trusts, um, they lose somewhere between 50,000 and 60,000 doctor days a year just by presenting physical pieces of paper to different trusts. And so it's just this huge waste of value. Um, and I think those two kind of um, those two projects really gave me the insight into like how transformational self-sovereign identity can be, both on like an individual's perspective from like just pure usability of identity, but also the massive value cases that can be attached to this stuff. Um, and probably the best example of that right now is the work that IATA are doing with Evanim on the Travel Pass initiative. And that's effectively helping to rescue the international aviation industry. Um, and you don't really get a value case larger than that at the moment, although I'm sure they will be in the future. So that's probably the point to kind of move over to like what is SSI and, and kind of try and explain it in layman's terms. And the best way that we found of articulating it is really to compare it against like how your data is used now in a digital format. Um, and really, your your data right now is is built around companies. Your identity is built around uh, around those organizations. It's why the average listeners to this call will have somewhere between 200 and 300 uh, accounts tied to an email address. And uh, our governance lead, Alex, had a great point about this of whenever you're trying to access your data, you're actually asking a gatekeeper for access to it which given it's your data is just kind of insane from a logical standpoint. And really self-sovereign identity flips that on its head and says that you should be the holder of your own data. You should have control of what you receive, who you share it to, um, and also the elements of that that you receive and share. It doesn't have to be everything. But the key part really is that it's under your control um, and you kind of can decide what you're doing with it. Um, and I guess, Jamie, just one final point before I kind of hand back to you. I think on the commercialization side, one thing that's really been interesting from our perspective is like SSI combines historic like data silos. So you can bring together data from like every single industry onto the individual. So there's suddenly like a massive commercial benefit to the tech because you can request data for an ind individual. And if they're willing to share it, you can suddenly create use cases which have never been been possible before. And I think that's the bit that we're really passionate about. 
Yeah. And so, you know, as I've gone down the SSI rabbit hole over the years, I've understood it both as a kind of cost saving, a way of removing really inefficient ways to identify yourself um, to other individuals or organizations. Like it's an, huge amounts of friction for the user. I mean, anybody knows this if you use the web. You know, the amount of times you've got to create an account, you've got to log in, you've got to reset your password. You've got to do that every, every single time over. Or you've got to get comfortable with using a Facebook or Google login and effectively losing control of, uh, of, of the associated um, data. At the same time, as you said, and this is something we'll get into a little bit later, that it is a commercial opportunity subject to the individual opting in um, that organizations that may be able to verify or test somebody is who they say they are is able to provide certain context um, can can either offset the associated cost of that and or uh, derive revenue but you know i think so whilst we're making huge amounts of progress in let's call it let's start talking about it in the context of web3 um it's kind of the elephant in the room right so everyone likes to think that web3 is about sovereignty of the individual um everyone likes to think that it's incredibly decentralized but actually until you solve for decentralized identity you can't have a decentralized web at some point you are always reliant upon an intermediary so can we just start there like why and how is self-sovereign identity as a as a technology set or as a form of standards um how does that enable web3 great question i guess to go back to, to your point around like um in the in kind of web three in this decentralized world we're creating, like identity is still one of the only centralized parts. Like to take centralized exchanges as, as an example, every single one of those is using a centralized identity system. And often, I've obviously like most of your listeners will have like multiple exchange accounts, and I'm pretty sure I've been checked by the same organization multiple times. And really, the the beauty of the kind of the technical standards and the the approach that the SSI kind of ecosystem is taking that is that all of this should be interoperable. And that means that no kind of single corporation or organization should have complete control of your identity. And that goes across the entire stack. So there's a, a kind of foundation, the Trust Over IP Foundation um, and Decentralized Identity Foundation, which have kind of application stacks, which go from the network where, where we sit is checked all the way up through the application, through the wallets, through to the kind of the, the governance stuff at the top. And, and broadly across all that entire stack, the focus is on interoperability. And really, the aim there is to prevent any kind of single entity controlling the entire network or the entire stack. Um, and the aim there is very much like allowing everyone to fulfill certain parts of the ecosystem in a way that if they so no longer kind of fulfill that function, they can be swapped out for someone else. And that suddenly means that you will have like a wealth of service providers all fulfilling kind of a marketplace. But you as the user get to decide like who you engage with and which ones you use. And it completely opens up the ecosystem. So it moves away from, to Jamie's point, like the Facebooks, the Google logins into a system where actually there is a, just a de facto set of standards and approach. And it doesn't matter who you're using because everyone is using the same protocol to, to engage. 
So it just cuts out all of the centralization and allows everyone to kind of build on an open stack. Obviously, we'd love that stack to be checked, but like that's the whole point of this is it's it's an open market and it means that we need to keep up with the market demand and make sure we're the leading network to to fulfill that. So, you know, I, I think for people to get their head around self-sovereign identity as a, as a technology set or as a, a set of standards, and then as a consequence, understand the checked stack, um, I, I think we first need to, to unpack some of the things I, I mentioned earlier in the conversation around verifiable claims and decentralized identifiers. So what's often referred to in the SSI community as VCs or DIDs. Um, now, I know, uh, as I said, we, we originally worked with Sovereign, the Sovereign Foundation. We've worked with Evanim. I know they made certain technical decisions. And whilst you've kind of responded to this kind of community request for a, a tokenized or token optimized uh, self-sovereign protocol, I know that you are also kind of, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants, right? There's decades worth of work in the context of self-sovereign technologies and standards. Could you just talk us through some of those primitives and how, and then how you've Leverage them in the context of checked. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you've you've obviously covered off the two main ones, dids and and VCs. Dids are probably worth breaking down into into kind of two, but ultimately, um, as you said, it stands for decentralized identifier. Um, when you're looking at this in the SSI context, you tend to split them into two, and one is private dids, and the other one is public dids. And public dids are typically kind of almost analogous to like decentralized public key infrastructure for anyone kind of technical out there. Uh, but broadly, it's a way of kind of publicly identifying in a decentralized way an organization. Now, there are multiple DID methods, everything from blockchain-based ones through to uh, web-based and also Kerry, which is coming around. But broadly speaking, they're kind of the public side are um, decentralized identifiers, which which are representing an organization. Um, and it's typically an organization that is willing to be public about its identity. What you then have separately are, are kind of decentralized identifiers. And what they are used is on a pairwise basis to identify yourself to a counterparty um, and subsequently kind of encrypt and transmit like messages between yourselves, whatever those messages happen to be. So that means if I was to kind of connect with Jamie, I would have a different did if I was connecting to Anchor. And the logic here is that by having these private dids, which are swapped out on a pairwise basis, each of us can kind of, um, there's no way of tracing us across a network by looking for a single did. There's no way of kind of invading someone's privacy by tracing them across a network. So really dids kind of perform two functions. Overall, like a did performs a function, which is identifying yourself to a counterparty. Now, public dids are basically identifying yourself to anyone. Private dids, dids are identifying yourself to a, an individual counterparty. Um, and obviously, yeah, the more counterparties you have, the more private dids you have. If we then flip over to kind of verifiable credentials, um, really, they it's quite a um, kind of a convoluted name for what is almost kind of just identity data or just trusted data or accredited data, shared data, any of that stuff. And basically, all it is is a statement about you. And you in in the SSI world, in a pure, pure self-sovereign identity space, you could say something about yourself as a statement. And if someone was willing to accept that, you could send that as a verifiable credential. 
So what that means is you would be able to make a statement, they would be able to receive it on the other side, and they could check that it came from you and that you had stated whatever it was that you'd said. So for example, I could say I'm, I'm over 21 without, without having to reveal my date of birth, just that somebody can attest to the fact that I'm over 21, right? Exactly. Now, the, the extra layer of this is really that trust comes in from who issues that data or who just kind of makes that statement. So Jamie saying he's over 21, like based, based on how long we know Jamie's been around, is probably a reasonable statement. But if it's, say, someone on the borderline of like 18 to 21, really you're only going to trust that statement if it's coming from, say, a driving license or a passport or some other form of identity. And that's where the kind of verifiable credential model comes in. And if you if you look back, it's almost called the triangle of trust. And it's looking at kind of um, organizations issuing credentials to individuals, individuals then sharing those credentials onto someone else, possibly redacting half the data. And whoever receives that data at the end can go back and check that that data was issued to that person. And it did come from the right organization in the first place. And in, in that kind of scenario, to use Jamie's example, um, like the UK DVLA, Driving Licence Licence Authority, issues out a credential to, to Jamie. Jamie takes it into his nearest off-licence, and the off-licence just goes and checks the uh, the fact that Jamie's over 21, and they don't even need to check the date of birth or even Jamie's name. All they need to check is, does the face match the person stood, stood in front of them, and is it over 21? And at that point, this is where the verification comes in, they know that that data is specific to Jamie and it came from the right place. And, and that's really the beauty of kind of um, the, the verifiable claims model. And ultimately, where that comes back to, um, if we refer that back to DIDS, the ability to check that it was issued to the right person um, is, is kind of a function of the DID um, in, in that the receiving organization, the verifier, can check the or is receiving that data down the did from jamie but on the public did side they're checking the credential was actually signed by the correct public did so it was the correct dvla and it wasn't kind of a false one or or another organization which is kind of issuing driving licenses falsely so that's really how they tie together into this kind of triangle of trust model um, and as it's postcards, unfortunately, we can't share the diagrams but if you look for like ssi triangle of trust um, you'll probably find it pretty quickly yeah, and of course, like you know, the age is an easy example, but um, I, I think people can begin to see the commercial potential, and we're going to, I guess, get into the identity economy and how that could look and, and why it being token optimized is is better. But you know, this idea, if you go beyond age, that an organisation they've conducted a certain form of of um, identifying me in a particular context. And if they've done that once and I give them permission, then they can attest to anybody else trying to um, identify me in that context and presumably then derive a revenue from that, right? So where it may have been a cost for an organization to KYC me, for example, um, uh, in, in theory, they could then derive a revenue from that as long as I give them permission to be that identifier, right? Uh, exactly. And the one that's always given is banking KYC because it's um, it's high kind of assurance, um, but it's also a process that people go through pretty frequently. And at the moment, that costs the bank somewhere between 10 and 100 quid, depending on how deep they go. 
and that's one of the reasons why so few people are offered kind of decent interest rates and decent services from their bank is the actual onboarding costs they need to make back in some manner before they offer you anything. Um, and this is like Jamie was saying, really turns it on its head and says like, you've done that process as part of something that you need to do from a regulatory perspective, but you can now go and um, the individual can now go and use that credential anywhere else. And that may not be inside banking. In the beauty of kind of SSI and this kind of interoperable stack is that that credential can start being used across any other industry. So Jamie could go and take that credential from banking and because they've checked his passport, could again walk into the off license, which is apparently turning into a habit. Or he may go and open <laughs> a very good a, profile of me that you built up. <laughs> you started it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but the other the other side, you could be going into to a mobile phone contract, getting insurance, any of that kind of stuff, and you'd be able to use that form of identity again. And a great example of this is um, is in HR and for, for consulting. Like if you're a consultant, you typically get onboarded to a company like somewhere upwards of at least twice a year. And the reality of this is you go through the exact same process every single time, which is a headache, despite the fact that most of your credentials aren't changing on a regular basis. Like you still went to the same uni, you still were born at the same time, you still like have have a driving license or you don't. And the idea of just having to manually check that every single time is insane. So it changes it very much from like this repetitive cost into something that really can drive revenue on like, we hope, quite a significant scale. Yeah. So let, let's talk about some of the technical decisioning, because as you say, there's a number of different ways people have implemented SSI at the various layers of the SSI stack. You know, my early experience with SSI was primarily in the context of Hyperledger Indie, which was a kind of open source code base as a collaboration between IBM, Evanim, and, and several other organizations. Um, it was not tokenized, but it was open sourced. Um, I know you're building on the Cosmos stack. Um, so could you just tell us like what's different um, between you know, your implementation and Hyperledger Indie or any other one. And I know there are, of course, also other blockchain identity protocols. But I think one of the things that a lot of people don't fully understand is this kind of idea of on-chain. You know, like how much identity do you actually want on-chain and why might too much of that be a bad thing? Yeah, good, great question. So I think to, to start with the first one, I think it's first worth looking at like the business rationale of like why we moved off India onto Cosmos. And it's actually quite easy. And we've, we've written a blog about it. And broadly, it comes down to like, if I give Jamie or any individual their data, I have reasonably no control of where they're going to start using that data. Like I, they could be using it in country, they could be using it across the other side of the world. Um, and they, I mean, the other side of this, they could be using it in the metaverse. And I have no idea of like, in traditional fiat rails, it is extremely complex to move payments around, even when you have a contract. Um, and it's even more complicated when you don't. And as a result of that, really can only be done in, in a tokenized way. Um, to, 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 like, to give a direct example, we, we tried to pay um, a lawyer in a different country, and it took us three weeks of our CFO's time, two transfers and a conversion. And that was due to Fiat Rails. And it was someone we had a contract with and all of the details. 
On the flip side, we had a similar contract with another lawyer in another country, and it took us half an hour because we're sending via USDC. And that's really how easy this needs to be. Um, so I think that's like first worth covering off the rationale because like that was one of the key drivers for all of this. It's just that they're really we don't see another way of doing it. Um, so so I gotta be clear for for yeah. there needs to be the, the the commercial element around identity, you know, transactions, high throughput transactions, presumably lots of micro transactions. That's just like just not possible without the blockchain component, right? Exactly, exactly. And that then took us into a world where we um, obviously Indy had some kind of token attempt on it from from the sovereign days, Um, but really it wasn't particularly fit for purpose. So a few things to note on the Indy side of stuff, like it was didn't scale well beyond 25 nodes. So it's, it's not necessarily maximally decentralized. I think and we're that, actually that was very permissioned, right? So it was, a, it was effectively, a, deliberately, a permission network with a select number of organizations that would, would govern uh, that network. And effectively, exactly. it was a cost to them to operate it. There was no actual revenue uh, derived from it. Ex- exactly. And then if we, if um, I think the other side of it was, and you mentioned it just a second ago, was high throughput. And I think India, at that number of nodes was looking at like four TPS or maybe up to 10. And that just isn't enough when you're starting to route payments around the network. I mean, it's always the classic thing that's been leveraged at Ethereum is, and why it's potentially moving to POS is like you need that high throughput to make this viable. So, so those kind of like combination of technical limitations plus um, like the business reasoning really made us move into like looking at other platforms. And so at that point, we literally went out looking at like Polkadot, Solana, what else, Stellar. And Cosmos. And um, basically, the further we got through, the more Cosmos made sense. And really, a lot of the metrics were native token functionality, which obviously all of those four cover. Um, but then we were looking into like high throughput, the availability of existing custodians, because we know that because we'll be dealing with enterprise later on, like we know that we're going to have to make it as easy as possible for them to work in a tokenized way. And that really means custodians for digital assets. There was already support from exchanges, so we weren't going to have to go and beg for that. And also, there were kind of nascent SSI implementations being built, including by the the Cosmos Cash team, who we're now looking to work with as well. And really, like combining all of that together, it just made sense from a platform perspective. And it's probably a credit to like the Cosmos like SDK and platform that we're being able to launch so quickly. So we only started properly in April and we're only, what, seven months later and looking at launch. Um, and really, we couldn't have done that on any of the other platforms. They're simply not there yet. Um, and it's been a massive, massive, massive benefit to our timelines to be able to build out on Cosmos. I think, JB, you had, you had a second question, which was around um, kind of privacy and how much identity do you put on Ledger? Yes. Cool. So... Um, and that's that's something that we we've seen mistakes of um, quite a few times. And really, what it boils down to is if you're writing individual private information onto the ledger, then you start um, you basically lose the right to be forgotten. Um, and that kind of then focuses down onto GDPR. And so GDPR is like the right to private life, the right to be forgotten. And if you're writing kind of data onto the network about individuals, even hashed, you start creating correlatable data about that person. 
So effectively, the approach that the SSI community has taken has just been don't put any personal information whatsoever onto the network. Don't be writing names. Don't be writing passport details or any of that. And that's really where those kind of technical standards come in is um, really the only things that should be going onto the network are uh, public identifiers and data around kind of the schemas for data uh, verifiable credentials. So really not a lot goes onto the ledger at all. And that's really by design. And th- the whole aim of that is to stop like, if you're writing anything onto that, that that network about an individual, you can really quickly just start following them around the network. And just the easiest way of doing that is just avoid it. And and that's really where the, the standards come in. Like they're really written to avoid that like point blank. Um, I think to, to go back to like, we've seen some mistakes there. Yeah, well, really I was going to say, so let, let's stay on this point, right? And I, I, I try not to come from a, a point of negativity, especially related to other projects, because you, you kind of got your own, yeah, fair. You, you got your own approach, but WorldCoin. So, you know, obviously that's <laughs> probably the most high profile, latest attempt at identity. Um, and it's faced a lot of backlash. So, uh, so I think it's fair to talk about it. So how do you, based on all the things that we just mentioned, and I don't know the depth of understanding you have about WorldCoin's specific implementation, but what's your perspective on WorldCoin? So I think, I think going back to, I think the two mistakes um, that I, th- I think they're making, and obviously this is from just like whatever is public so far. One is like, because of the way it's being recorded, like yes, it's yes, it's with a decentralized network, all that kind of jazz. But the actual like recording of the biometrics is is pretty centralized. Like it's all being operated by one company. Um, so as a result, you're almost ending up with like yes, there's a blockchain network involved, but it's kind of like blockchain washing the like centralized identity nature of it because of the way it's been recorded. And the the other problem with all of this as well is that like. Um, a lot of people forget that biometrics is not perfect. It's not like a password. There's not a binary yes or no. And you're very much relying on like, it's a statistical match. And if you've got all of this kind of being rooted around and everyone knows that it's all based on face and iris, there's a reasonable chance that people can spoof it, um, especially if you're allowed unlimited tries. So it's really not a perfect technology by any stretch. Like you really need to box it in to make it appropriate. And I think the the final bit is very much like, if I've understood correctly, they are writing kind of biometric hashes onto a ledger. And again, that's one of those things that just like, you will now start to see those payments move around the network for an individual. And as soon as you, like, for example, um, if an individual goes into a store and pays using WorldCoin, then the next thing that's going to happen is that store knows exactly who that person is and they can just watch them move around the network interacting with other organizations and suddenly they're just their privacy is completely broken um and i think those yeah i'd say those are really the two it's like yeah and if you think about you know the well firstly the and, and this is maybe universally true but especially in the countries that they're rolling this out in um where perhaps there's greater concern about governments and and how they may or may not be um, involved in people's lives 
and I, I think the kind of for, for me the, the the red flag was just any biometric data being hashed um, can identify you at a at a, a particularly concerning level, right? Because it's biometrics rather than necessarily just a, a name. Um, so. I don't know if it's even worth talking about how we've seen various COVID pass implementations, right? Because, um, I mean, firstly, nobody's really using them. But I, I do think it's good context, right? Because on the one hand, you've got WorldCoin, um, which is a very Silicon Valley approach to the problem. And on the other hand, you've got governments rolling out COVID passports in in totally different ways in totally different forms of implementation anybody that's traveled between countries in the last year or so will realize you know often you'll you'll literally identify it could be a screen grab of a pass it's not it's not even necessarily yours um could you just talk us through uh an example of how covid passport covid passporting could be improved by your kind of implementation of ssi yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's worth bearing in mind that because of how quickly this has moved, a lot of the border forces were, were and airlines in their credit were literally just looking at like whatever is better than paper that is quicker to quick to implement. So they weren't necessarily looking for like perfect. They were just looking for better than paper and doing it in an iterative manner. So I think what we'll see is we'll start to see like more of a coalescence around like how should this be done properly? And obviously, say IR to Travel Pass is probably a great example of it. Um, but you've obviously right now you've got a load of centralized systems that are all holding this data. And I think the most recent um, one of the most recent stories was around some of the EU states and the fact that there's I think a, um, a COVID passport that's been issued to a Mickey Mouse. Um, and there's current speculation of like whether that's been a hack or whether that's been just like a developer doing some tests. Right. Um, but it's just one of those things of like, obviously, there's like some element of like you can, I guess, not defraud it, but it's it's like it's not a perfect system by any stretch. Um, whereas I think where it needs to get to is like this proper interoperability. So the, I could take a credential from the UK and turn a, turn up at the border in Cambodia and all of the systems talk to each other in a, in a language that each of them understand. Because at the moment, if I turn up to a foreign border that isn't expecting or doesn't kind of know of the, of the nat National Health Service in the UK, they probably won't recognize that COVID passport. Um, and I've seen a couple of times like people being thrown out of queues because just the credential they're trying to use is not recognized because it's not to some international standard. And really, like that's where it would be much better to move to because it's Again, putting that under the control of the individual, it's not just reliant on the central database. Like there was that story maybe a couple of weeks ago of a load of people missed a flight at Gatwick on EasyJet because the data, like whatever happened on at the IT layer just fell over for four hours and they ended up with like a plane load of people who couldn't travel, who, who hadn't taken a scan of the, um, or like taken a screenshot of the, um, of the right. COVID pass. And in fact, even those people who did take that screenshot were hacking the system in the first place. Um, so really it's, it's people are working around these systems rather than leveraging them properly. So I guess moving into like the second part of that answer is like actually issuing them in a VC model means that everyone is kind of following the same international standards. They should be interoperable with each other. Well, there's obviously words to do there, but it means you're no longer reliant on like these centralized systems to go and check them. 
you're not kind of going to be hamstrung if the database falls over for four hours. And also you can go to anywhere in the world and that COVID passport will be understood and can be translated. So it's just, it's a completely different approach, but I think it's, it's moving that direction. It's just been a case of we need something as quickly as possible. And we just, we only understand centralized databases right now. So that's what we're going to build. That's fair. I think that's fair. So let's talk about the identity economy and why a token optimizes that, right? And this is obviously something we've worked very closely with you on, but I've generally been advocating for for a very long time. So, you know, where Sovereign, for various reasons, um, failed to realize uh, the the kind of token optimized version of their network. I've been very vocal about the idea that this needs to exist. Um, Can you talk us through that? And, And I think one of the things that, again, I've always been very compelled by, so going beyond why I think this just, everybody knows identity is broken, but everybody generally thinks about that from an end user perspective. Um, But actually identity is broken for most organizations, right? Because especially in Europe right now, identity and data is a liability. So companies can be fined when they're hacked and it's almost inevitable every organization hacked it's just to what scale um, they can now be fined in the billions in theory uh, a percentage of their rep global revenue as a consequence of not being able to secure that 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 identity and data of their users so could you talk us through ident- identity as an economy the, the kind of business case and how a token optimizes that economy yeah, absolutely. So if we, if we, it's probably best to refer back to like what happens now and effectively for, for a number of reasons, organizations hold your data, um, whether that's by regulation or a business pur- purpose, regardless of that outcome, like as Jamie said, because they're worried about hacking, because they are forced to by regulation or, or maybe it's their business model, all of those look to monetize their data because it's the only way of kind of covering themselves from a revenue standpoint. Like it's it's treated as an asset because they have to hold it in, in a lot of circumstances or, or again, it's their business model. Um, and really, I think that's where kind of if we bring it into the SSI world, it's making uh, self-sovereign identity a, I guess, a technology which can now fit into that stack and replace that revenue model from people kind of using your data for advertising or tracking or analysis and actually turning that into like the data is with you. And whenever you use that data, there is a revenue stream coming back. Um, so I think it's, it's completely flipping the model on its head. And I think the, one of the beauties of the technology is it has the potential to reduce the amount of information that organizations require or need to hold from an individual. Like if you look at some of the things that happen right now, like you have organizations that are requesting like the entire uh, passport or the entire driving license and they really don't need that all they need is like is this the right name is it the right face and or is it the right address and they don't need all of the other details on that document certainly like especially if like your off license absolutely does not need your your address which is on your driving license and yet like they could potentially read it off or if it's in a digital solution like there are others out there they'd be able to ingest that data, which they really don't need and don't want. And I think there's going to be a move into a, a kind of an approach of what do we actually need? 
um, what, how, can, how much can we minimize our exposure to being hacked, to being breached, um, while still making sure that like, we're meeting regs as we need to and make it a lot easier for, for the individual? So I guess, if Jamie, that, I think your second point was around like, moving through into, into the token economy and how that works. Yeah. Cool. So I think really there's multiple parts of this. One is the the actual payment for the identity. So the ability to have Jamie go off to the other side of the world to whatever organization, whatever company, whatever shop and share whatever data he needs to and the payment routing its way back across the network to the right organization. Like like we said before, really can't happen in a fiat way, but in a token way, it, it's absolutely possible and, and yeah, follows that example we gave around the law firms. But in extension to that, I think there's there's other parts of the token that really, really have massive value in an SSI ecosystem or just identity in general. Um, obviously, the first is like the security of the network, so like natural staking. But the flip side of like the so just quickly almost, let, let's let's yeah. uh, let, let's talk about that because I, I know it might seem obvious to, to you and I, but I do I think it's important to stress the idea that you know that a token could help secure that network, an identity network. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, if I if I compare it back against Indy, um, Indy was using its own custom um, consensus mechanism. So as a result, that was what was really limiting it to like four to ten TPS and twenty five nodes. That was really where that was coming from. And obviously, one of the beauties of proof of stake is that as you're putting that stake up, you are inherently protecting the network whilst doing it in a much more efficient manner than even kind of Indy was doing with its own with its own version. Now, the kind of one of the benefits of that is obviously token rewards off the back of it. And I think one of the big changes from the Indy sovereign model where that was a cost that all of the organizations had to bear, whereas actually in this world, it becomes a revenue stream, um, or at least in, in, in token terms. So that suddenly means you're actually being rewarded for, for supporting the network in the way that you weren't before. Um, and there's just that's a really nice kind of secondary benefit, which isn't like, obviously, it's a result of securing the network, but it's a really nice benefit for organizations who historically have paid quite a lot to run infrastructure for, for, for identity. So let's let's um, let's zoom out now. Let's assume that checked is universally accepted, used, or, or some other form of similar token optimized um, proof of stake identity system. Right? What does that look like in the context of the metaverse? Oh, good question. So. I think there's multiple ways of, or like multiple areas it feeds into. Um, so, I mean, one example would be the ability to, if I go through use cases, one ability would be, one use case would be the ability to port avatars between multiple metaverses because they're all owned by you. Um, being able to port like NFTs between like multiple metaverses because they're all owned by you. So you can suddenly kind of tie your identity across multiple places whilst also having the flexibility to present whatever identity you want. So there's nothing to stop you kind of changing your name into a metaverse. It's not, it's just not going to be trusted data. So in across kind of certainly like virtual worlds, you can really kind of port identities across whether that is like, into something like Superworld, or whether it's into like Call of Duty or into Counter Strike, show my age there. But like you'd be able to port that avatar across as you want to because it's yours and it's tied to your identity. You could also port across kind of like skill bases and histories. 
So the fact that you've like on a certain game built up to a certain reputation and gone across to an entirely different platform, you can still take some of that reputation with you. So you're not starting from scratch. But also if you then look into like, um, touched on NFTs already, but like being able to prove like the provenance, like who created it, who owns the NFT at any one time um, and do that in a much more kind of secure manner than, than what is happening right now. Um, and also have like that lineage, like fractional ownership, um, and then even if we go just into like into like crypto and DeFi, the ability to have like privacy preserving identity across those. So if you're sharing across to another individual and you don't know anything about them right now, a lot of what happens is like test transactions to make sure that that wallet is under their control. Whereas with this, that like you could share something as like lightweight as a as a Telegram handle that's trusted, or as deep as like a full passport if you really needed to prove the other side. So there's like that complete range. Um, but there's also I think I think something longer term, which is like as you start having recurring revenue streams for identity, you also open open up the opportunity to um, actually tokenize that revenue stream and create an entirely secondary like an entirely new secondary market. So you suddenly end up with like a secondary market, like full DeFi for identity revenue streams. So there's like this whole sw- like range of use cases across like the metaverse of yeah everything through to like full virtual worlds, like gaming, fashion, all that kind of stuff, all the way down to just like pure like financial utility of, of identity and the revenue streams there. Um, and I, I, that's the bit that I'm really looking forward to is like what gets built on top. Yeah, and I think the DeFi one is actually a, a really good example because, of course, the question now is, um, you know, how can regulators exert pressure upon participants in the DeFi ecosystem to comply around KYC and AML? And in doing so, does that fundamentally undermine the decentralized nature of DeFi? And I know, you know, with principles around um did verifiable claims, the idea could be that a DeFi protocol could have surety that the individual and or counterparties have passed reasonable KYC and AML to transact between one another without themselves having to be the be the counterparty in that identification process, right? Exactly, exactly. Uh, there's really nothing more for me to add there because you've like nailed it all the way through. Oh, awesome. I, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a perfect example. Um, so yeah, really nothing to add because that was spot on. Oh, there you go. Well, we can go home now. That's it. We've turned our job. <laughs> um, well, look, you know, Fraser, I think it's it's great to have seen the progress that you guys have made. I, I, this is something that both generally and specifically I feel really, really passionate about. It needs to be solved. Um, and you know, I, I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to see how this can begin to unlock the web three and open metaverse that, that we all want to see. Absolutely. And I, I, I think for us, like if you could take a, or speak to someone about a technology that has the potential to like eliminate passwords, make KYC reusable, like suddenly monetize their data and a bunch of other stuff all at the same time people would be rip, ripping your arm off. So we just need to get that message out there and I mean, make sure that people are aware of like how much this can solve and how much this can change. And uh, I guess we've got to finish off with a massive thank you to yourselves and the Outlier Ventures team for just the huge amount of, amounts of support, both for like pre- previous initiatives, like you, you said, we're standing on the shoulders of giants, 
but also what we're doing now and just you've been you yourself and your team have been absolutely incredible oh too kind well look you know we're really happy to be on this journey with you and um really looking forward to seeing what happens in uh, the next year absolutely thanks jamie if you enjoyed today's podcast please make sure you subscribe rate and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of web3 